Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. I was a racketeer. It may seem odd for me, a military man, to adopt such a comparison. Truthfulness compels me to. I spent 33 years and four months in active service as a member of our country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from a second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. I suspected I was just part of a racket at the time. Now I am sure of it. Like all members of the profession, I never had an original thought until I left the service. My mental faculties remained in suspended animation while I obeyed the orders of the higher-ups. This is typical of everyone in the military service. Thus, I helped make Mexico, and especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National Citibank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1914. I helped make Honduras right for American fruit companies in 1903. In China in 1927, I helped see to it that the Standard Oil Company went on its way unmolested. During those years I had, as the boys in the back room would say, a swell racket. I was rewarded with honors, medals, promotions. Looking back on it, I feel I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was to operate his racket in three city districts. We Marines operated on three continents. That statement was written by then-retired Major General Smedley Butler of the United States Marine Corps in an article 
entitled America's Armed Forces in Time of Peace, which was published in a periodical called Common Sense, which was actually a socialist magazine in November of 1935. Smedley Darlington Butler is one of only 19 men in American history to have won two medals of honor, in addition to all sorts of other decorations. And at the time of his death in June of 1940, he was the most decorated U.S. Marine in American history. He was basically, give or take a few years, a contemporary of such celebrated military men in American history as Douglas MacArthur, Dwight Eisenhower, and George Patton. And yet, Butler is much less well-known amongst the general public. I believe that the reason that Smedley Butler is not as well-known basically comes down to a combination of the following. First, for most of the time in his service, the Marine Corps was a relatively light expeditionary force and had relatively little involvement other than a few units in World War I with like massive large-scale conventional war. A lot of the enlargement of the Marine Corps and of their role would actually come about after he had retired. Secondly, he retired in 1931 at a pretty young age, I think he was about 50 years old, and then died a decade later, approximately. So that means that Smedley Butler missed out entirely on World War II, where so many of those generals I mentioned before that were his contemporaries really made themselves famous. And by the way, Smedley Butler was 110% vehemently opposed to American participation in World War II. And the third reason I think Smedley Butler is not nearly as well-known, and perhaps the most important reason, is his post-war activist career, which was, to put it mildly, extremely critical of the growing American military-industrial complex and of the increasing tendency of America's political class to favor ever-larger imperial operations in far corners of the world. These are things that by the end of his career, Smedley Butler had become disgusted with and didn't want to see his country engaging in on an even larger scale. Most people, if they do know anything about him, just know he was a highly decorated Marine general and he wrote War as a Racket. And that's a very important document, make no mistake, and I'll be talking about it a bit in this episode. But relatively few people know much else about this very interesting and complicated and admittedly highly imperfect individual. There's a lot of things I don't like about Smedley Butler, but I think what he did was to get redemption in the third act by his post-retirement activism in the decade leading up to his death. There's much more to this man and his story. It is, to say the least, extremely complex. And so I hope you'll enjoy this Episode 120 of the Dangerous History Podcast, DHP Heroes, Smedley Butler. But before we delve more into Smedley Butler's story, I have to give a bunch of Patreon shoutouts. A bunch of excellent, awesome individuals have stepped up to help out the podcast. So massive thanks go to Troy, Tyler, Martin, Kenneth, Joshua, Bill and Alicia, full name, I kid you not, someone's supporting me on Patreon under the alias full name. And Oliver, thank you all very much for stepping up to support the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon. And the web address for that is patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And to those of you listening, 
A reminder, as always, if you want to help out the show and get a couple little extra benefits as well, you can sign up to support this show. And if you sign up for a dollar per episode donation or more, I'll thank you by name in the next show I make. You'll have access to special bonus episodes in Patreon that are available nowhere else. And if you desire, you'll be eligible to join my private closed Facebook group, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors, that's just for Patreon supporters of the show. There are other ways you can help the show as well, which will be mentioned at the end of the episode. Now, in my teaching, every semester for many years, probably at least six or seven years, if not longer, in my bread and butter history course, which is U.S. history since 1877, which is now the only gen ed requirement history course, every semester in that class, which is always one of my fullest classes by far, right after I cover World War I, I have the class read War is a Racket, and then we spend the next class session, after they've read it, having a discussion about War is a Racket and about connections to American history now, you know, 80 years after War is a Racket was written. Now, because I teach at a small college, it's basically what used to be called a community college, but it now has a few bachelor's programs and it's now called a state college. And it's in a small town in the American South. You better believe I've got lots of veterans coming through my classes. And I'll often have as many as four or five veterans in a large class like U.S. history since 1877. And when we cover war as a racket, it is the veterans who are the most receptive and the most strongly in agreement with Smedley Butler's message out of any other students most of the time. And it's very common for veterans to, during that discussion, chime in with their own personal anecdotes of witnessing, you know, just in the past few years, a lot of the same kinds of things that Smedley Butler talks about in that document as far as war profiteering and that sort of stuff. And the people who are the most skeptical of Smedley Butler's message tend to be the armchair warriors. They tend to be the students who are the most gung-ho, patriotic, rah-rah Team America and who've never been in the military or gone to war or anything like that. Which, by the way, I haven't either. And I certainly don't think you have to have gone into the military to have an opinion about these sorts of things. But it's just interesting how the people who've actually been in the military and been in harm's way and seen America's military operations from the inside have a, in, in my experience, a very strong tendency to be at the very least skeptical of the government and of the military industrial complex. Now they may or may not be like genuine anti-war people or whatever like that, but they at least have a more realistic cynical view of what's really going on. And they don't believe the propaganda version of America's military operations overseas, the way someone who's raised in kind of a patriotic right-wing household, but who's never actually seen it from the inside or even studied it in any depth might be seeing it. So let's delve into this guy because he's more interesting and complex than even I thought. I was familiar with the basics of who he was and his resume and his basic kind of life story. And I'd read War as a Racket and a few of his other pieces that he wrote many times, but I didn't know all the details of his life and his career. And 
what I found when I researched this guy in much greater detail than I ever have for this episode is that my opinions on him remain very conflicted, but if anything, they're even more strongly conflicted because I found good things out about this guy that were things I didn't know about, and I found out bad things about this guy that I didn't really know about. And so, as always, when I do a DHP Heroes, I always try to point out I'm not encouraging anyone to engage in like conventional hero worship or anything like that. I think that's a horrible thing. And among other things, it's a way to disempower you, a regular person, to make you feel like you're nothing. And these, you know, quote unquote, great men of history are these gods who make civilization and save it, and you should always obey a great man, and all this sort of nonsense. And that's a way to basically keep you in your place and make you think that you're unqualified to run your own life, and make you think that you have to have a leader telling you what to do, because you're just too dumb and weak to run your own life. So when I say DHP heroes, I really urge you to not think of it in the conventional way of mindless hero worship and treating people like gods and saints and all this sort of thing. That's certainly not how I mean it. How I mean it is somebody who, and I try to find people who are not as well known to the general public anyway, somebody who in some way made what I consider to be a positive contribution to planet Earth while they were here. It doesn't mean that it's someone I think we should all emulate. It doesn't mean that it's someone I think was flawless or that I, I respect and agree with on everything they did and said in their life. But it means someone that looking at the grand scheme of things, I think did some good in some way while they were here. And so in that light is how I see Smedley Butler and... I think many of you will agree with me as well once you've listened to this, if you're not already intimately familiar with this guy and his life. So, let's start at the beginning. Smedley Darlington Butler. What a weird, pretentious-sounding name. It's one of those names that sounds like three last names. And that's because it is. His first, middle, and last name come from three longtime Pennsylvania families. The Smedleys the Darlingtons and the Butlers, who were affluent Quaker families. They weren't super mega oligarchy rich, but they were definitely at least upper middle class, who'd been in eastern Pennsylvania literally since the days of William Penn setting up the colony, and who'd been part of the state's kind of Quaker elite for nearly two centuries by the time Smedley was born. Smedley Darlington Butler was born in 1881 in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and his family were Quakers, though they weren't always the most consistent, but they still, for example, used words like thee and thy when speaking or writing letters to each other. But like I said, the family wasn't always the most consistent Quakers, in particular when it came to pacifism, and you can actually find this going back in their family history. For example, Smedley's grandfather, a man named Samuel Butler, was actually known as the Fighting Quaker and was kicked out of a Quaker group during the Civil War because of his views on the war. And, and I don't recall if he actually fought in the war, but at the very least, he supported the Union cause and the war effort. 
Young Smedley grew up in affluence, and he attended the rather prestigious Haverford School, which is near Philadelphia, which is, I think still to this day, a favorite school for the Philadelphia area elite to send their children to. And at school, Smedley played football and baseball. And he was one of these people who wasn't really a natural athlete in a lot of ways, but who had very much just tenacity and a refusal to quit and, you know, what today maybe they would call a a lot of heart. And so he was a reasonably good athlete, despite indications that he wasn't a supernatural gifted athlete type of guy. But Smedley left the Haverford School shortly before his 17th birthday in order to join the Marine Corps in 1898, because he heard that they were recruiting in a hurry in order to send men to the Spanish-American War, which was just starting up. The school still somehow issued him a diploma, although I don't think he technically finished out all of his courses. Smedley actually falsified his age in order to get into the Marine Corps, and he was able to get an officer's position despite barely and kind of not really finishing high school because there was a procedure at the time where you could become an officer on a temporary basis just for the duration of this war because the U.S. military was so desperate to quickly build itself up in numbers to fight Spain that you could become a temporary officer just for the purposes of this war. Smedley's father, Thomas S. Butler, was a lawyer and judge who was elected to Congress as a Republican in 1896 and who was in Congress for 32 years until his death in 1928. Again, not a very consistent Quaker. Thomas Butler was heavily involved in military affairs in Congress and in particular, perhaps not surprisingly at all and definitely beneficial for his son's career, was a major supporter of the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps in Congress. He actually was for many years on the committee that dealt with all that stuff. So young Smedley's military career began in 1898 and would run all the way through 1931. It began with the Spanish-American War. And in the Spanish-American War, the Marines performed, in a lot of ways, much better than the Army in terms of things like speed and organization and logistics. They were simply better prepared to deploy around the world on short notice. However, Smedley's individual career didn't get off to a very promising start there. Now, one of the reasons the Marine Corps was better than the Army in a lot of ways during the Spanish-American War was that it was much smaller and it had a lot less rookie recruits than did the Army. Most of the raw recruits who joined up for the Spanish-American War went into the Army, and they were just logistically totally overloaded with rookies. The Marines were smaller to begin with, and they attracted fewer of the rookie volunteers, and so they kind of had a greater percentage of professionals mixed in their ranks. Smedley was coming into the Marine Corps at an interesting juncture, just as its mission was starting to kind of broaden and change from its traditional roles as simply being an adjunct to the Navy to guarding ships and Navy facilities and things like this. And it was starting to shift into becoming what we think of it today as being primarily a light infantry expeditionary sort of force. And Smedley himself, as a longtime high-ranking officer, was going to play a major role in some of those changes as the Marine Corps evolved in the early 20th century. Now, Smedley's time in the Spanish-American War was not very impressive, but... 
Obviously, he would go on to a long and prestigious career. When the war with Spain ended, young Smedley, who'd been one of these temporary volunteer officers during that war, was initially mustered out of the Corps. But his brief experience had made a big impression on him. And even though he hadn't been very impressive himself in his service in that war, he felt like it was something he wanted to keep doing and to cultivate the skills of being a Marine officer. After being initially mustered out of the Corps, Smedley refused to go to college, something that his family was kind of pressuring him to do. Historian Hans Schmidt, who is the author of the best book about Smedley Butler's life that I've come across, the book Maverick Marine, General Smedley D. Butler and the Contradictions of American Military History, writes the following of Smedley's refusal to go to college after returning home from the Spanish-American War. Quote, Having quit school in favor of a military initiation into manhood, he picked up the warrior cult of physical masculinity and a corresponding anti-intellectualism. And while he owed his elevation as a precocious boy officer to upper-middle-class prerogatives, class traits of gentility and education proved an embarrassment in the field. By identifying with the warriors, Butler set himself apart from the better-educated peers and aligned instead with uneducated, roughneck tendencies within the Marines. This anomaly would become acute when he reached the upper echelons of the officer corps. Except for the Cuban-Philippine War Volunteers, the Marine Corps was taking junior officer entrance from among U.S. Naval Academy graduates. Belligerently and defensively, Butler came to pride himself on having learned his trade in the field and to despise highbrow trends in military professionalism. Butler despite upper-middle-class prerogatives and social ties, committed himself to what were becoming increasingly lower-class military mores, confirmed by his unwillingness to resume formal education, end quote. And it shows you what a different place the U.S. military was back then, what a different institution it was, that there still were some occasions, at least, where it would be possible to become not just an officer, but ultimately, in Smedley's case, a general without actually having a college education. And he learned his craft of being a Marine officer on the job. Now, upon returning home from the Spanish War, at first Smedley was unsure what to do. He didn't want to go to college, but the Marines had mustered him out, as they had most of the volunteer officers. But then an opportunity arose something that was absolutely ideal for his own personal career preferences. And that was in 1899, Congress decided to increase the size of the Marine Corps by threefold. And as part of this, there was an offer where the temporary officers from the Spanish War, like Smedley, were allowed to apply for spots as regular officers. And they were not required to get a college degree or go to the Naval Academy or anything like that to do so. They simply had to take an exam. And if they did well, and assuming their you know prior service had been at least satisfactory, they would probably get a commission. And so Smedley took the exam and did very well on it. I think he was like, I don't know, second or third out of everyone who took it that year. And as a result of this, he was commissioned as a regular first lieutenant and sent to the Philippines, where trouble was brewing. Young Smedley hadn't seen real action in the Spanish War, since his unit arrived after other Marines had taken Guantanamo, which was the main Marine action 
in that theater of the war, but he would see a little bit of action in the Philippines war that followed on its heels. In the Philippines, Smedley had some problems with drunkenness that actually resulted in a temporary demotion while he was there. Later in life, he became a teetotaler and supporter of Prohibition, which obviously seems to have been a reaction against his early episodes of drunkenness. And in the Philippines in October 1899, Smedley came under fire for the first time. Young rookie Smedley was there in command of a company that was taking the town of Navaleta. And I am not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Please forgive me if I'm not. There, the Marines took heavy fire, and in fact, Smedley's own sergeant was wounded, and also Marines were getting quite incapacitated by the tropical heat and humidity. But despite that, the Marines managed to take the town from the Filipino insurrectos. In this first real action of his career, Butler's superiors thought he did a good job, especially for being such a rookie, in leading his unit. And after this experience... Smedley was really cemented in his idea of making this his lifelong career and decided to make it permanent with ink on flesh. Soon after this, he had a huge Marine Corps insignia tattooed on his entire torso, basically, from his neck to his waist. While he was in the Philippines, Smedley took to a Marine Corps major named Littleton Tony Waller, who was a middle-aged career officer who had seen a lot of action, and Waller would become a mentor to Smedley over the coming years. Now, as a result of the Filipino War, Waller would end up being court-martialed, but ultimately acquitted for killing some POWs in the Philippines. Despite being acquitted, though, the stigma of this trial seems to have stayed with Waller kind of politically, and he never rose as high through the Marine Corps ranks as he otherwise probably would have, at least in part due to this court-martial that kind of hung over him from the Philippines. But despite all this, Smedley saw him as a role model and mentor and stuck by him as a friend throughout the time where their careers overlapped. The next place young Smedley participated in action was in China in the so-called Boxer Rebellion. He was dispatched there as part of the multinational force putting down this Boxer Rebellion, which was basically a Chinese nationalist uprising aimed at trying to end foreign domination of China. And while he was there, Smedley was commended for bravery in an incident where he pulled a wounded man to safety under fire. And this also resulted in Smedley himself being wounded, I believe, in the thigh in the process of saving this guy. Back then, officers could not receive the Medal of Honor. They were not eligible. But Smedley was nonetheless officially commended by Major Waller and was given a brevet promotion to captain. By the way, four enlisted men who were involved in this incident in China also did get the Medal of Honor, so it's likely that Smedley would have gotten it there had it been possible at the time. After the Boxer Rebellion, Smedley continued to rise through the ranks and was involved in several of the so-called Banana Wars in the first couple decades of the 20th century. These were the small wars in Latin America and the Caribbean that the United States was seemingly perpetually involved in at least one, if not several at a time, over those years. And the Marine Corps was Uncle Sam's favorite tool for these sorts of small wars because they were a very mobile, amphibious, light infantry force that could be deployed quickly. And also at the time, 
American and also international public opinion tended to see the deployment of the U.S. Army as being tantamount to a declaration of war. But for whatever reason, they saw the deployment of Marines to someplace as something much lower in intensity than that. And so the Marines were almost like a police force you could send outside your own borders in the eyes of the American public and much of the developed world. As historian Hans Schmidt puts it, quote, The Marines were establishing their preeminence as colonial infantry for surgical interventions, where the United States preferred, for reasons of flexibility and limited liability, to emphasize a degree of continuity in local sovereignty, end quote. And that's about as many words ending in I-T-Y as anyone could ever jam into one medium-sized sentence, I think. In 1903, Butler was in Honduras, where a rebellion was taking place, and the Marines were sent in to protect a U.S. consulate there. And during this operation, Smedley got afflicted with some sort of nasty tropical illness, and got the nickname Old Gimlet Eye in reference to the red eyes that he had during this whole thing. And this would later become the title of an autobiography that he wrote. In 1905, Smedley married a woman named Ethel Conway Peters, who was apparently a beautiful Philadelphia socialite and with whom he would remain married for the rest of his life and would have three children. Tony Waller, who by then was a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, was Smedley's best man. In 1908, Smedley apparently was suffering from some health problems and took leave from the Marines. And during that time, he worked briefly as the manager of a coal mine. But before long, his health had apparently recovered and he was back on active duty, now with the rank of major. All the while, throughout the first couple of decades of the 20th century, Smedley Butler's father, Thomas Butler, was often using his position in Congress to boost both the Navy and the Marine Corps and to defend the Marines, in which his son was an officer, from politicians who, in that era, there was a strong movement for a while to try to end the Marine Corps as a separate military branch and to simply merge it into the Army. And at least on some occasions, Thomas Butler did what he could to help his son's career, although he didn't seem to do as much as he might have out of a sense of kind of propriety, and I think Smedley agreed as well that he didn't want it to be really exaggerated and blatant help where it would look to the whole world like his father in Congress is obviously just smoothing the way for his career. But no doubt Thomas Butler did what he could to help the Marine Corps, and on a few occasions at least to help Smedley's career, and he also tried to help out Waller's career, but was unsuccessful in getting Waller the position of Commandant of the Marine Corps, again in part because of the negative legacy of the court-martial. From 1909 to 1913, Smedley Butler was active in Central America, being posted to the Panama Canal Zone, and during that time was also involved in repeated interventions into Nicaragua. And in many of these interventions, Butler was realizing how much American corporate interests, very commonly things like banks or fruit companies or oil companies or other things along those lines, were motivating these American interventions pretty clearly. And yet at the same time, Smedley was getting fame and promotions and decorations for this, so he must have been conflicted on some level internally during these years, because he wasn't an idiot. 
And he occasionally makes verbal remarks or writes something in a letter or what have you that indicates a certain degree of cynicism and that he kind of sees what the game really is all about. And yet he's getting all these personal benefits from his service. It must have been conflicting. Hans Schmidt describes this as follows, quote, Resentment against crass economic motives behind American military interventions was commonplace in the contemporary officer corps, which saw its high codes of honor being prostituted for commercial ends. In Butler's case, skepticism regarding American motives and resentment at being shamed in deceitful subterfuges were offset by personal and professional achievements, end quote. In addition, Team America was already doing the familiar thing of intervening in a country, picking it a government, and then having the people there vote in a controlled set-up election, basically choosing between U.S.-approved candidates. And Smedley Butler was definitely smart enough to see this game for what it was. And in fact, years later, he would publicly say of these sorts of things, quote, the opposition candidates were declared bandits when it became necessary to elect our man to office. Our candidates always win, end quote. In 1914, Butler was part of an expedition that was ostensibly trying to keep tabs on a revolutionary situation happening in Mexico and was to be ready to intervene full-fledged if American lives or property in Mexico were threatened. While the U.S. didn't end up launching a complete full-on invasion of Mexico in 1914, Smedley would be involved in the so-called Tampico Affair, which would involve U.S. occupation of Veracruz for over six months. This whole thing, honestly, was, in my opinion, a bunch of bullshit that reflects very poorly on a man who is an absolute shoe-in for the much maligned DHP villains roster, a guy sure to be covered in some future episode in detail for all of his dastardly villainy. And of course, I'm talking about Woodrow Wilson, in my opinion, a strong contender for the worst American president so far in U.S. history. And let's be honest, considering the rogues gallery of American presidents... That's not a very light accusation to say someone is possibly the worst out of all of those creeps. Anyway, the story of the Tampico affair is that Tampico was the center of the oil industry in Mexico and a major port because of this. And in April 1914, some U.S. Marines from an American naval vessel came in to Tampico to buy some fuel, which was something that had happened many times in the past. However, because of the ongoing revolution in America, these Marines ended up being arrested by Mexican soldiers. Now, when the military governor of Tampico heard about this, he had the Americans immediately re released and apologized for the whole misunderstanding to their commanding officer, who was a guy named Rear Admiral Henry Mayo. Mayo, though, was not satisfied with this and demanded that the Mexican forces stationed at Tampico had to fire a 21-gun salute as an apology as well. And this the governor refused to do. He thought it was going too far. Now, President Wilson, instead of telling Mayo to stop making foreign policy on his own down there, decided to back up Mayo's demands and, in fact, told the president of Mexico... 
a president that, by the way, Wilson didn't even recognize as the president of Mexico at the time, that he, Wilson, demanded the 21-gun salute be fired down in Tampico. Now, the president of Mexico suggested that, as a compromise, both the Mexicans and the Americans down at Tampico should fire a 21-gun salute. Admiral Mayo and President Wilson refused to accept that. Wilson was, by most accounts, generally not much liked and not much respected by the American military while he was president. And despite that, or more likely, honestly, in my opinion, because of that, Wilson decided to back up Admiral Mayo's demands no matter how ridiculous they were. In fact, Wilson made three unconditional demands on the Mexican government of President Huerta. First, they had to punish the Mexican officer who'd arrested the U.S. Marines in Tampico. Second, the Mexican government had to send an official apology letter to the American government. And lastly, the Mexican forces at Tampico had to fire that goddamn 21-gun salute. And Woodrow Wilson said only by meeting all three of these demands would Mexico avert war. Now, President Huerta, as head of state who'd only recently taken over under revolutionary circumstances, for obvious political reasons, regardless of what he wanted to do personally, he couldn't accept all this and expect to save face and survive politically. Wilson, for his part, refused to back down, and much of Congress seemed willing to back him up on this. And this is what George Carlin referred to in, I believe it was Jammin' in New York, as the bigger dick foreign policy. This is the bigger dick foreign policy at work. It's being willing to possibly cause the mass murder of countless people, most of them totally innocent civilians if it had happened, in order to defend one's reputation and opinion of oneself. This is the bigger dick foreign policy at work. On April 19th, 1914, Wilson's deadline to meet these demands on the part of the Mexican government expired, and the House of Representatives voted to authorize the use of force. The Senate didn't vote on it. I believe they adjourned before they could. I guess people who opposed going to war over this stupid crap had enough votes to kind of prevent it from happening. But what then happened was, a couple days later... Wilson got word that a German ship was headed into Tampico with a cargo of weapons for the Mexican government. And on that basis, Wilson sent a brigade of U.S. Marines under the command of Tony Waller, of course, to occupy Veracruz. And Wilson did this on his own authority without any legit congressional authorization. Smedley Butler was in command of a battalion of this brigade, and during this operation, he would earn his first Medal of Honor, since Congress had just recently changed the rules of this decoration so that officers could be eligible to get it. And in fact, in the takeover and occupation of Veracruz, 37 men would win the Medal of Honor during this operation, including, by the way, a young Douglas MacArthur. In fact, as far as I know, more Medals of Honor were awarded for this action, the invasion and occupation of Veracruz, than any other action in American history, despite the fact that only 17 Americans died in what were basically, in the grand scheme of things, a bunch of small skirmishes. Now, to be fair, at the time, the Medal of Honor wasn't as prestigious of an award as it would later become, but even so, 
many people back then and ever since have been of the opinion that the U.S. government was way too generous in handing out medals of honor in this operation. And Smedley Butler agreed with them. Smedley, at first, tried to refuse to receive the Medal of Honor for this operation, saying he didn't deserve it for what he had done. But Secretary of the Navy Josephus Daniels basically politely ordered him to accept it and shut his mouth. And he did, but even so, Smedley was uneasy about this, and he wrote to his mother in a private letter, quote, I cannot stand the thought of having my sons proudly display this wretched medal, or rather wretchedly award it sometime and have a bystander wink when they, my boys, had always been under the impression that their father had honestly deserved all he left them, end quote. Now, while the U.S. forces were occupying Veracruz, Smedley decided that they needed to try to get some really good intelligence in case they were ordered to invade central Mexico and perhaps take Mexico City. So what he did was he personally went undercover, you know, got out of uniform into plain clothes and went into central Mexico pretending to be a railroad man named Mr. Johnson. And under this cover, he went all the way to Mexico City and to the U.S. consulate there, gathering detailed intelligence on everything the whole time, and then successfully made it back to Veracruz. Now, the invasion of the Mexican heartland of Mexico City didn't happen, although a few years later, General Pershing would invade with an army force from the north. But it is an interesting operation to read about Smedley's infiltration all the way to Mexico City, the amount of audacity it took to just kind of con his way all the way in there. It's pretty impressive, regardless of what you think of the larger military operation. And some historians have argued that, if anything, Smedley deserved the Medal of Honor more for doing what he did infiltrating to Mexico City and gathering intelligence than for what he did in regard to the seizure of Veracruz. Now, for whatever reason... Even though U.S. forces in the vicinity were more than adequate to do the job, Wilson never ordered them to take Mexico City. But in July, President Huerta resigned under, I believe, at least some amount of duress and was replaced by America's preferred man for president of Mexico, a guy named Venustiano Carranza. And a few months later, Wilson ordered American forces to leave Veracruz. So this operation had resulted in the overthrow of a government in Mexico and had drastically amped up anti-American sentiment in the country and accomplished little else. But perhaps Woodrow Wilson and Admiral Mayo felt more secure in the size of their genitals after the whole thing was over. I suppose we should consider it fortunate that tens of thousands of innocent people didn't have to die in this whole stupid confrontation. In 1915, Smedley Butler was involved in the occupation of Haiti and in pursuing a counterinsurgency war against Haitians who were known as cacos or bandits, or as Smedley, and I'm sure many other Marines too, but we know for sure Smedley sometimes called them at the time, his words, bad niggers. Smedley had apprenticed to Tony Waller, remember, and Tony Waller was a Southerner. I believe he was from Virginia, and he had the exact attitudes on race 
that you would expect of a Virginian of that time period. And it probably didn't help that Tony Waller had some ancestors who had been killed in Nat Turner's slave rebellion back before the Civil War. While Smedley's attitudes on race were never quite as bad as Waller's were, sometimes his language could be pretty offensive, especially to modern ears. Now in Haiti, the Marines had little trouble dealing with the mostly totally untrained and very ill-equipped Kakos, and after dispersing them in a few operations, the Marines offered the Kakos the chance to disband and turn in their arms in return for amnesty and the possibility of joining the American-sponsored gendarmerie, which the Americans were organizing to run Haiti as kind of a national paramilitary police force. And one of the few things that even barely qualifies as a battle against the Kakos in Haiti, at an old French fort named Fort Revere, Smedley Butler led three companies of Marines in a dashing and highly successful assault that captured the fort and killed all of its occupants, with only one Marine being wounded in the process. And for this, Smedley again won a Medal of Honor on the recommendation of the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, who at the time was a man named Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, was in charge of kind of overseeing the Marine Corps. Of course, as was pretty much always the case, America's intervention in Haiti was motivated primarily by corporate motives, and Smedley Butler was wise to the game. He saw it for what it was. Now, at the time, he's still at the point in his career where, where he's going along with it, but he's certainly not happy or proud of the corporate angle on the whole thing. What had happened was, in the years before Haiti started to have some real serious disorders, Wall Street financial interests had taken over Haiti's national bank and its railroad system. A guy named Roger Farnham, who was VP of National City Bank of New York, which was a major J.P. Morgan banking linchpin of Morgan's empire, was also at the same time VP of the National Bank of Haiti and president of Haiti's National Railway. He was also, shockingly, President Woodrow Wilson's top advisor on Haiti. Conflict of interest much? After having defeated the Kakos, Butler was made the commanding officer of the American-sponsored Haitian Gendarmerie, and he did his best to try to get them up to standards of discipline and professionalism that he approved of, and by all accounts, he did a good job at efficiently setting up and running this police force. He also came to have a little bit more positive view of the blacks, who were now under his command, and he replaced his negative racial epithets against them with what by the standards of back then would be considered benevolent, but to our ears today were decidedly un-PC and very offensive terms of endearment, such as, for example, calling them his words, my little chocolate soldiers, which obviously still paternalistic and to our ears today racist as hell, but I guess you could argue it's at least better than bad niggers and savage monkeys, as he had called these people during his earlier campaign against them when they were cacos. That said, it seems that his racial attitudes, Spendley's racial attitudes, and his rather gruff, aggressive, belligerent style 
pissed off a lot of the Haitian elite, and despite him apparently running the police force there reasonably well, overall his time in Haiti seems to have done a lot more harm than good to U.S.-Haitian relations. Smedley was promoted to lieutenant colonel during his time in Haiti, and he now had a positive relationship with... Woodrow Wilson, Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, as well as Assistant Secretary FDR. And his father, at the same time, was still a key Republican in Congress. In fact, by this time, he had become the senior Republican on the House Naval Affairs Committee. So the stars looked pretty good for the career of Smedley Butler. Smedley was still in Haiti in the spring of 1917 when Team America declared war on Germany and thus officially entered World War I. Naturally, as a gung-ho fighting Marine, he desperately wanted to leave the Caribbean and head to Europe to get to the front lines of the Western Front as fast as he could, and he would try to pull all the favors he could to get there. And it took a while and a lot of nagging and calling in of favors and playing politics, but Smedley departed with the 13th Marine Regiment, to Europe in September of 1918. Once there, he was quite disappointed to find himself posted, not at the front lines of the battle, but to command Camp Pontenezen, which, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but it was a debarkation camp in France for American forces arriving there. Conditions when... Butler took over there, were absolutely horrific, they were disgusting, things were crowded, unsanitary. This is also during the era when the flu epidemic was sweeping the world, the so-called Spanish flu. So, really not a good time to have lots of unsanitary conditions in crowded areas. And there was lots of mud, lots of sickness, just not good. And by all accounts, given the situation, Smedley did a good job with what he had to try to improve the conditions there. And while he was there, he was actually given a temporary wartime promotion to Brigadier General. Now, if you think about when he got there, September 1918, that's just a few months before the armistice. And this means that not that long after he took this place over, American troops began coming back through Pontanazen on their way home. And part of Smedley Butler's legend comes out of this posting. The mud there was absolutely awful, and Smedley kept trying to fight the bureaucracy to get the things he needed to deal with the situation, and he eventually got fed up and tired of the bureaucracy and the red tape getting in the way of him acquiring the supplies that he knew he needed to deal with the situation and make things better for the military personnel coming through his camp on the way back to America. Historian Hans Schmidt writes this of this element of Butler's personality, quote, Butler, particularly when in warrior guise and roused to attack, tended toward creative flexibility, not to say insubordination, and could be openly contemptuous of bureaucratic procedure, end quote. Butler knew there were thousands of duck boards stored at a warehouse nearby in Brest, Duckboards, if you don't know, are things that kind of look like maybe wooden pallets or short boardwalk segments, and they're designed to be laid down on muddy ground in order to make a nice firm walkway. 
And Butler knew these were there in the warehouse in Brest, and he requested to be able to get some of them through the proper channels numerous times, but got nothing. And finally, having had it with the whole bureaucratic nonsense, he led several thousand men down to the warehouses where they just grabbed the duckboards out of the warehouses along with some tools and brought them back towards Camp Pontanesin. And Smedley Butler, always one of the people who, regardless of whatever you think about what he was doing, was a guy who was a real leader. He led from the front and he led by example. He personally went and grabbed a duckboard and carried it all the way back, and it was uphill, I believe, to the camp. And from then on, many people affectionately called him General Duckboard. And I think this whole episode really shows that he was a guy who, despite his very gruff, cantankerous personality, he really did care about his men, and he really did want to see them get what they needed. And he was quite willing to cut through the bureaucratic bullshit when it was necessary. Around this time, Newton Baker, who was then Secretary of War back in D.C., sent, of all things, a novelist, Mary Roberts Reinhardt, to investigate the conditions at the camp and report back because people were hearing things about how horrible it was. And she reported back that General Butler was doing everything he could to try to make things better. And in her report, she told the story of Smedley Butler and the duckboards, and it became fairly famous. And as a result of his time overseeing this camp, Smedley Butler was awarded two American medals and also one French one for his actions. General John Pershing even authorized a duckboard patch for the units that were involved in this whole thing. Reinhardt's reports led to the Secretary of War sending additional supplies to Pontanesin, which, under Butler's command, became, by comparison with the others, the best run of all of the American debarkation camps in France. All that said, Smedley was, as a fighting Marine, of course, pretty sore that he'd not had an opportunity to participate in the real fighting on the Western Front in World War I. And in his autobiography written many years later, Old Gimlet Eye, he wrote that, quote, Cleaning up a concentration camp was not soldiering. The job could have been handled by any enterprising hotel keeper or circus manager, end quote. Smedley himself personally left France in July of 1919. After World War I, Smedley Butler took command of the Marine Corps training base at Quantico, a position that he would hold from 1920 to 1924, and then again from 1929 to 1931. As time went on in his career, increasingly Butler was a guy bucking the trend in the Marine Corps, which was increasingly to favor educated and very bureaucratically and politically savvy high-level officers over the kind of rough, uncouth ones who had learned their craft the hard way in the jungle, i.e. people like Butler. Hans Schmidt writes of this, quote, Butler and the warrior style were being eclipsed in the command hierarchy by time-serving, relatively civilianized, highbrow professionalism, end quote. That said, in a lot of ways, Butler was, I think, ahead of his time in terms of PR. For all of his gruff exterior, he was actually pretty savvy 
with increasing the profile of the Marine Corps in the public eye and getting more positive support of the Marine Corps. So, for example, during his first stint at Quantico, he tried to do what he could to boost the Marine Corps' status in the public eye by doing things like Civil War reenactments and trying to enhance the Marine Corps' football team and all that sort of stuff. For example, with no government funding, just private donations that he solicited, Smedley Butler built the Marines a football stadium at Quantico. And even though... Apparently, he personally didn't care that much about football. He nonetheless was a huge booster of the Marine Corps' football team because he realized that in peacetime, it was a way to boost the branch of the military that he was so sentimentally attached to. However, in the mid-20s, Smedley would take a leave of absence for a couple of years from the Marine Corps in order to be the director of public safety in Philadelphia. What happened was, in 1924, the then-mayor-elect of Philadelphia, a Republican named W. Freeland Kendrick, offered Smedley Butler the position of Director of Public Safety, which meant that he would be in charge of both the police and the fire department in the city. At the time, Philadelphia was one of the top American cities for police corruption and all that sort of stuff. And remember, this is the mid-20s, this is the era of Prohibition, when municipal law enforcement was often extremely corrupt as a result of these stupid laws against drinking alcohol. But Smedley by this point was a believer in prohibition, and he was certainly a guy who was always in favor of professionalism and against corruption, and he accepted the job on the condition that Kendrick, as mayor, would guarantee him a free hand in doing what he wanted to do, and also on the condition that President Coolidge would give him a leave of absence from the Marines to do this. Those conditions being met, Smedley took the job. Now, militarization of many aspects of domestic government was actually a big part of a lot of early 20th century progressive reform. Philadelphia at the time was one of several large American cities that had a real reputation for corruption and in particular for not complying with prohibition. Probably only a couple of other cities in America had an even worse reputation for, cor for corruption and not complying with prohibition than Philadelphia. By this time, as I've said before, Smedley was an ardent supporter of prohibition, having himself given up on drinking after a few incidents with overindulgence early in his career. As director of public safety, Smedley Butler aimed to make the Philly police more efficient and more effective and less corrupt. At times, this could be quite a disturbing amount of kind of police state tactics. And I think in a lot of ways, this is presaging what has happened in the U.S. since the full-on war on drugs was begun in the early 70s. Butler did reduce corruption and increase professionalism in the police force, but he also cracked down very heavy-handedly on such voluntary human institutions and interactions as speakeasies, remember, middle of the Prohibition era, as well as prostitution and gambling. And Smedley himself directly encouraged police in Philadelphia to be more quick to use their guns, saying, quote, I don't believe there is a single bandit notch on a policeman's gun in this city. Go out and get some. 
end quote. He also, in that statement, said that the first cop who killed a bandit would be promoted. In his first 48 hours on the job, Smedley launched mass raids on speakeasies, saloons, brothels, pool rooms, and all that sort of stuff, closing over 900 speakeasies within the first 48 hours. And he did several similar mass citywide raids several times during his tenure as director of public safety. Interestingly, the Philadelphia area kind of morality police do-gooder types ended up having mixed feelings about Smedley. On the one hand, they certainly liked his crackdown on vice, but on the other hand, they didn't like his gruff personality and his uh, penchant for profanity. Some of these do-gooder types even criticized Smedley for being too heavy-handed with his tactics, believe it or not. Now, I have to say, as much as I'm against all this sort of stuff, that unlike many heads of police departments at the time, at least Smedley Butler was egalitarian in his raids, and he did target some wealthy places, including the Ritz-Carlton in Philadelphia. He didn't just target the working-class speakeasies. Naturally, as he started to target the ritzier places, this didn't earn him many positive points with a lot of city leaders. Some critics even said that Butler was becoming a local military dictator, and they pointed to things like police checkpoints he set up on the routes into the city, and the armored cars and sawed-off shotguns with which he equipped some members of the police force in Philadelphia. Now, by our standards today, all that stuff sounds relatively mild, but in the 1920s, that was quite a big step towards militarization of the police. As time went on, Butler alienated the mayor who'd invited him in, and he left the job on bad terms in January 1926 to return to the Marine Corps with orders to go to San Diego. Despite leaving the police job, Smedley continued to write several pieces advocating for further militarization of American police forces, and he thought that Pennsylvania should eliminate all local police forces and have a single centrally controlled force. He argued that its main kind of grunts should be young, unmarried men recruited for a four-year period, during which time they would not be allowed to marry. Units under his plan would be constantly shifted around the state to prevent anyone from getting too friendly with their local population. Hans Schmidt sums this up as follows, quote, This general scheme, to which Butler remained attached and indeed personified for the next decade as a police consultant, public speaker, and author, represented the militaristic extreme in contemporary law and order polemics. It amounted to an almost explicit domestic interventionism modeled after Marine and Army colonial constabularies overseas. End quote. Of course, that makes perfect sense, given Butler's military experience up to that point. And I think the best way to sum this all up is, the Empire always comes home. Now, in San Diego, Smedley Butler had, to put it very mildly, a tough time fitting in at the Marine base there, primarily because it was a very wet town with many of the Marines there being among the wettest of the wet. And Smedley, of course, was an ardent supporter of Prohibition. 
things got sparked up there pretty quickly when a colonel there named Alexander Williams had the butlers over soon after their arrival as guests of honor at a dinner party at his house. According to Smedley Butler's account of the evening, Williams greeted them along with a maid carrying a tray of cocktails, which he tried to kind of push on them. Supposedly, again, according to Smedley's account, when he refused to drink any of these, Williams chugged a few of them himself. And later, the butlers left Williams's house and went to a dance at a hotel, and after a while, Williams showed up and was apparently making a drunken ass of himself. Again, all of this according to Butler's account of what happened that night. As a result of this, Butler decided to seek a court-martial, and this became known as the Cocktail Trial. During this court-martial trial, much of the San Diego Marine personnel ostracized the butlers, and the local press ridiculed him. Hans Schmidt sums up the trial as follows, quote, The trial itself was a farce, centering on the thorny question of whether Williams had actually been drunk or disappeared to be. Butler himself had not sampled the cocktails, so was in no position to say what was in them. Other, mostly junior officers, testifying before a very senior court, tended to dissembling and obfuscation, a display that reduced the honor and dignity of the corps to the level of commonplace civilian prevarications over the same issues. The verdict, guilty as charged, was hardly in doubt since Williams had clearly transgressed the bounds of good order and discipline, and public drunkenness by an officer in uniform was an offense, regardless of the 18th Amendment. End quote. As a result of this, Williams was demoted and transferred to a recruiting office in San Francisco, where not long thereafter he drove his car into the ocean in the middle of the night and drowned. Autopsies revealed no alcohol in his system. The police ruled it to be an accident, but many people speculated it might have been suicide. Now, after spending some unhappy time in San Diego, Smedley Butler would be dispatched back to China after more than 20 years since his first time being there. In 1927, he was sent as the leader of a Marine Expeditionary Force to China, where nationalist uprisings were causing some serious concerns for the various outside powers that had spheres of influence in China, or in the case of the United States, also pretensions of still trying to force an open-door policy on China's economy. Will Rogers wrote at the time of this, quote, Smedley Butler has arrived in China. The war may continue, but the parties will stop. End quote. When Smedley arrived in Shanghai, nationalist forces were sacking foreign consulates and were laying siege to Sakoni Hill in Nanking. By the way, Sakoni, S-O-C-O-N-Y, stands for Standard Oil Company of New York. While there, Smedley Butler did his best to try to protect Americans, American consulates, and American property with a minimum amount of overt force. Part of this did involve protecting a standard oil compound at Tientsin, around which the Marines actually built permanent fortifications. And this was yet another case where Smedley Butler clearly saw that a big part of an operation he was leading was in fact protecting U.S. corporate interests. 
This is reflected by a statement he made to Congress in the 1930s. Quote, I spent 15 years of my service running around the world guarding Standard Oil tins. End quote. And a pilot who was involved in this expedition said of it, quote, We were protecting the Rockefeller oil interests along the Hi-Ho River. Otherwise, there was no need for the military presence there at all. End quote. On Christmas Eve 1924, the Marines helped put out a fire that popped up in the Standard Oil compound, possibly sabotage. And afterwards, Standard Oil donated some money to build the Marines a new recreation hall and to buy every man who'd helped in fighting the fire a new uniform. In 1928, while Smedley was still in China, his father Thomas, who at the time was the senior most member of the House of Representatives, died of a heart attack. Overall, it seems that Butler ran the American contingent in China in the late 20s much better in terms of minimal force and things like trying to resolve problems with diplomacy than did the other foreign military contingents in the country at the time, such as the British and Japanese. When Smedley returned from China in early 1929, he was again posted to Quantico, and shortly thereafter he was at 40 years old, given a promotion, making him at the time the youngest major general in the American military. In addition to his duties running Quantico, Smedley began dabbling in other activities to make some extra money, namely writing nonfiction articles and also pulp adventure stories, fiction, kind of based on a lot of his personal adventures. And the latter, by the way, were co-written with Arthur J. Burks. He also got involved in public speaking. And out of all of this, public speaking proved to be the most lucrative and Smedley was invited to speak to groups such as veterans organizations, civic associations, colleges, and that kind of stuff. His standard fee was $250, which in the late 20s was a decent amount of money, though let's be fair, it's not exactly Hillary Clinton speaking in secrecy to Goldman Sachs money. Despite still being a Marine Corps general, Smedley was very open about a lot of his opinions, and he didn't have as many qualms as most generals in voicing them, often in very blunt terms. The first big controversy of this era was what Hans Schmidt refers to as an anti-imperial bombshell, which grew out of a speech Smedley gave in December 1929 in Pittsburgh, in which he spilled the beans about rigging elections in Haiti in 1912 and manipulating Haiti's government during his time there. For this, he was reprimanded by the Secretary of the Navy, and he issued a partial retraction and kind of kept clear of controversy for a while. In 1930, Marine Corps Commandant Buck Neville died, which meant the Hoover administration, by then Herbert Hoover was president, would have to choose a new Marine Corps Commandant, and Smedley's friends and his fans in kind of the political and military arenas mobilized themselves on his behalf, including such luminaries as former Commandant John Lejeune and former Naval Secretary Josephus Daniels. But despite all this, the odds-on favorites were Naval Academy men, and ultimately the Hoover administration ended up choosing Ben Fuller to be Commandant. After that, Smedley pretty much decided to retire. But 
before he did, he caused another political hubbub by repeating in a public speech a secondhand story that he claimed to have heard that Benito Mussolini, in the company of an American journalist, had kind of nonchalantly run over a child in Italy while driving a car. Now, the Italian government vehemently denied that any such thing ever happened, and they got pretty pissed off. President Hoover ordered Butler to be court-martialed. Now, as people dug into the details of this whole thing, it turns out that Smedley heard this story from Cornelius Vanderbilt Jr., who was kind of a traveling rich guy slash journalist at the time, who had met Mussolini, and Vanderbilt claimed that during his meeting with Mussolini, he'd gone around in a car with him and Mussolini had run over a kid and said something along the lines of like, yeah, the loss of a life is no big deal in the matters of state. Now, did this happen or not? We still don't know. Did Mussolini run over the kid while in the company of Cornelius Vanderbilt Jr.? We don't know. But it seems that at least Smedley was accurately repeating what Vanderbilt had told him. Whether or not that incident actually happened, though, or if Vanderbilt made it up, we may never know. Before the court-martial trial took place, though, Butler took kind of like almost a plea bargain deal whereby he would be reprimanded and wrote a letter of apology. I think it's to the Hoover administration, though, not to Mussolini, but he'd be restored in rank and the trial wouldn't go forth. And of course, with all this happening, Smedley, who had already been leaning towards retirement, was certain to do it. He'd been passed over for commandant, and he had become pretty well blacklisted by the Hoover administration at this point. Smedley Butler's official day of retirement from the Marine Corps was October 1st, 1931. After his retirement, as many of you know, Smedley would become a very prominent activist and speaker. Now that he was done working for the military, he could really tell people what he really thought without any worries about being court-martialed or otherwise in trouble. And it's in these years, the last nine of his life they would turn out to be, where he earns the coveted title of DHP hero. Had Smedley Butler just died in 1931, or had he retired and just played golf or something like that, not that I think he ever played golf, or had he just been sort of quiet, I would probably think of him as being a highly decorated Marine Corps general who was kind of an asshole, an imperialist, and a police state prohibitionist, none of which are things likely to earn you points towards being a DHP hero. But in the last years of his life, Smedley Butler did a lot to atone for many of the horrible things he had done earlier in his career. In other words, we've got redemption in the third act. Now, remember the context in which Smedley Butler is retiring, the early 30s, some of the worst days of the Great Depression, lots of angry people and angry groups, including large numbers of disgruntled Great War veterans. And Butler, now done being a general, quickly showed himself to be quite a radical, both in terms of anti-imperialism and in economic populism. And he put his money where his mouth was. On many occasions, he would donate half the money he made from speaking to unemployment relief. In 1932, he made a U.S. Senate run, well, actually a primary run for the Republican nomination for senator from Pennsylvania. 
At the time, Pennsylvania was a strongly Republican state, so kind of like the Solid South with the Democrats, in Pennsylvania, the Republican primary was really where the important action was. Smedley Butler challenged incumbent James J. Davis, but he ended up being completely steamrolled. He lost by a margin of almost two to one in the Republican primary, and that was primarily because Butler still clung to his support of alcohol prohibition at a time when most of the country, including Pennsylvania, was giving up on the whole thing and turning towards repeal, which, by the way, would be passed about a year later. And if anything, Butler's loss there made him go even further down the radical path. Hans Schmidt puts it this way, quote, More and more, he was an outsider, beholden only to his own beliefs, to the audiences that attended his lectures and read his writings, and to the broader public credibility necessary to keep him afloat as an entertainer and freelance dissident. His political views shifted ever more outspokenly toward a radical critique of contemporary events. This meant defiance toward the powers that be and the chance to enunciate the maverick tendencies previously hedged, end quote. I know the feeling. All I can say is, if only podcasting had been around in the 1930s, Smedley Butler could have had an absolutely kick-ass anti-imperialist podcast. As it was, he wrote some great stuff, such as his 1931 Common Sense article in which he first used terms like racketeer for capitalism. And he was quoted in The Nation magazine in 1932 as saying the U.S. military was, quote, a glorified bill-collecting agency, end quote, and said he, quote, wouldn't want to see a boy of mine march out with a Wall Street collar around his neck, end quote. In 1932, the Bonus Army was protesting in Washington, D.C. This was a group of disgruntled World War I veterans who wanted their so-called veterans bonuses early because they were losing their jobs, their farms, their homes in the Great Depression. And Smedley Butler spoke to this group in July 1932 to tremendous applause. In the 1932 presidential campaign, Butler called himself a, quote, Hoover for ex-president Republican, end quote, and supported FDR. Despite having been a lifelong Republican, he had never had a good relationship with Herbert Hoover, but he had had years back a pretty positive relationship with FDR when FDR was assistant secretary of the Navy. And in addition, Butler, like many people in 1932, including many people who were normally Republicans, was really frustrated with the economic conditions of the Depression, and with Hoover's lack of success in solving them. In 1933, Smedley published an autobiography entitled Old Gimlet Eye, The Adventures of Smedley D. Butler as Told to Lowell Thomas. The book didn't delve much into political issues, but instead focused mostly on the kind of military adventurism aspects of his career. But as Smedley's anti-imperialism got more and more radical in his speeches and in his non-fiction writings, he found that, due to his military career, he had a lot more credibility on this sort of stuff than most people. He could criticize American militarism and imperialism, and no one could seriously question his patriotism or his bravery. 
And during this time period in the 30s, many of his most receptive audiences for his radical speeches were actually veterans groups, especially the VFW, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, which at the time was the more, for lack of a better term, left-leaning of the veterans organizations. The American Legion, by contrast, was funded to a large extent at the time by oligarchs and was much more conservative. In fact, Butler told a VFW audience that the Legion was being funded and used by the bankers in order to get veterans to vote against their own interests. And in one speech to a VFW audience, he said, quote, I had never known one leader of the American Legion who had never sold them out, and I mean it, end quote. And we've got to mention a little bit about a notorious incident, the so-called business plot, which is still unclear what exactly was going on and how real this was. But in November 1934, Smedley Butler told a House committee that the leaders of kind of a fascistic corporate conspiracy had tried to recruit him to lead a coup against FDR, which would be backed by the Morgan banking interests and was supposed to result in a fascist dictatorship in America. Now, all the people and groups he accused of being involved in this upon being questioned, they vehemently denied it, and no further investigation beyond that was conducted. Smedley told the FBI and also, I think, the Secret Service, but no major investigations came of that as well. And historians are still kind of unsure how much of Butler's allegations may have been true or not. There's certainly some circumstantial evidence to make it seem plausible, but it's not been decisively proven that all of his allegations were, in fact, true. But regardless, Butler continued on a radical path. He was a fan of Huey Long from 1934 until Long's death in 1935. And in 1936, Smedley Butler, lifelong Republican before then, actually voted for Norman Thomas, the Socialist Party candidate for president. By this time, Smedley Butler had become pretty disillusioned with FDR, in large measure because he saw FDR beginning to put America on the path to more militarism. Interestingly, despite his increasing radicalism, Smedley Butler somehow had a pretty positive relationship with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who did, of course, have a file on Smedley, but in which agents reported that Smedley frequently said nice things about the FBI's professionalism and that sort of thing. So I guess apparently you could be a radical anti-imperialist kind of lefty, but you could still stay on J. Edgar Hoover's good side as long as you frequently complimented him and or the FBI. I guess that's the takeaway here. Now, in 1935, Smedley Butler collaborated with journalist E.Z. Dimitman on what is the best-known thing that he ever wrote, which is, of course, War is a Racket, which was published as a little book, and also, I believe, Reader's Digest published like a condensed version of it as well. And it's amazing that something as bland and mainstream as Reader's Digest would publish something as radical as War as a Racket, but it shows you how different things were in the mid-30s. In the show notes for this episode, I'll link to a free PDF of War as a Racket, and in the Amazon affiliate links, I'll link to an actual book copy in case you want that. War as a Racket begins as follows, quote, War is a racket. It always has been. 
It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. End quote. Smedley goes on to talk about how many massive fortunes were made out of World War I and how this ended up being born on the backs of the general population. Quote, the general public shoulders the bill. And what is this bill? This bill renders a horrible accounting. Newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and homes, economic instability, depression and all its attendant miseries, backbreaking taxation for generations and generations. For a great many years as a soldier, I had a suspicion that war was a racket. Not until I retired to civil life did I fully realize it. Now that I see the international war clouds gathering as they are today, I must face it and speak out, end quote. He goes on to talk about all the financial interests that benefit from war in the United States. In chapter two of War is a Racket, he goes in detail who makes the profits over some specific corporate interests, including things like the DuPonts, the chemical people who, of course, are heavily involved in gunpowder and other military chemical supplies, Bethlehem Steel, United States Steel. He talks about some of the copper companies back then. Of course, back then, you know, things people don't think about, like the leather company made a ton of money off of the Central Leather Company, specifically, made a ton of money off the war. Of course, back then, they didn't have Kydex and Cordura, so most of the military's kind of web gear and magazine pouches and whatever would still be leather. And then, of course, Smedley also points out the bankers who finance the war make a killing off the killing. And he talks about how many of them, for various reasons, not only do they profit, they profit without even deserving to profit. They, they profit by supplying the military with shoddy goods or supplying the military with goods that are not even relevant to the operations they're doing at the time. And so there's all this profiteering that most fair-minded people would say is ridiculously undeserved, even if you support the wars in the first place. And then Smedley follows this with chapter three, who pays the bills? And he says, we all pay them financially. Every citizen pays them. And then he says, quote, but the soldier pays the biggest part of the bill, end quote. And he talks about all the hardships and suffering that the soldiers go through. And then he points out they're not even reasonably compensated, the average rank and file soldier, for all the horrors that they go through and all the risks they take. Smedley is even savvy enough to understand the importance of propaganda and how this warps a nation. Quote, In the World War, meaning World War I, we used propaganda to make the boys accept conscription. They were made to feel ashamed if they didn't join the army. So vicious was this propaganda that even God was brought into it. With few exceptions, our clergymen joined in the clamor to kill, kill, kill 
to kill the Germans. God is on our side. It is his will that the Germans be killed. And in Germany, the good pastors called upon the Germans to kill the Allies, to please the same God. That was a part of the general propaganda, built up to make people war-conscious and murder-conscious. End quote. Smedley then points out, quote, Thus, having stuffed patriotism down their throats, it was decided to make them help pay for the war, too. So we gave them the large salary of $30 a month. All they had to do for this munificent sum was to leave their dear ones behind, give up their jobs, lie in swampy trenches, eat canned willy when they could get it, and kill and kill and kill and be killed. End quote. And then he goes on to say that soldiers had so much deducted from their checks they didn't even get the full $30 a month. At the end of the book, Smedley has a chapter entitled How to Smash the Racket, which is various proposals to take the profits out of war, to make wars less frequent and less likely. And some of these may be worth considering in an ideal world, but in reality, to me, it would be a waste of time to pursue any of these very seriously, because you would be counting upon the very same politicians who currently are embedded in profiting from war eight ways from Sunday to push these things through. And in my opinion, that's not going to happen. As long as there's a state, war is potentially very lucrative. And as long as that's the case, politicians are going to be, for the most part, other than a few principled weirdos who are not numerous enough to get anything done, they're going to be tending toward supporting war because it's lucrative and benefits their career politically and financially. Despite the fact that I'm kind of a downer on Smedley's proposals for reform at the end of War is a Racket, I still think it is worth its weight in gold. It is deservedly famous as a masterpiece of American anti-war writing, especially coming from a highly decorated Marine Corps general like Smedley Butler. For a while in the mid-30s, Smedley worked with the so-called League Against War and Fascism, but he ended up breaking with the organization when it began advocating intervention into Spain's civil war. Smedley Butler said to these people, quote, What in hell is it our business what's going on in Spain? End quote. And he continued to be an opponent of FDR's military build-up policies in the second half of the 1930s. And in particular, he was very focused on his area of expertise, FDR's naval build-up. In his writings and speeches, Smedley called for a navy that was strong enough to resist any invasion of America's mainland, but no stronger than that. And specifically, he wanted a navy that was limited in its range so that it could only be used for genuinely defensive purposes. His views were very similar to the America First Committee that emerged a few years later. He advocated for a very strong defense for America, but he also argued that it be truly defensive in nature and that America be more or less neutral and not looking for fights. Hans Schmidt sums up Smedley's take on the geostrategic situation in the mid to late 30s as follows, quote, With existing U.S. military capability, no foreign enemy or likely coalition could invade America. It would take a force of at least a million men to invade a nation of 130 million. They would have to arrive all at once to be effective. 
there was not enough shipping in the entire world to transport such a force across 3,000 miles of ocean in a period of 10 days. The real danger of war was American military adventurism, not foreign invasion, end quote. Smedley supported proposed constitutional amendments in the 1930s to limit the range of American warships and planes and to require a popular referendum before the nation could go to war, none of which, of course, passed. But because of his expertise, he saw very clearly, like a prophet, America heading down the path to becoming truly Team America World Police. He saw this as early as the mid-1930s. And by the late 1930s, it was becoming increasingly obvious to many people, some of whom welcomed it, some of whom, like Smedley Butler, dreaded it and thought it was dangerous to whatever there was left of what was best in the American tradition. At a 1937 VFW convention, where he appeared alongside various isolationist-minded political leaders, Smedley Butler told the audience, quote, it's your crowd that's going to do the dying and bleeding, not the Wall Street bunch of flag wavers, end quote. By the late 1930s, in many ways, Smedley's views, while still populist, seemed to have been more in accord with the old right than with the left. The establishment press, which was pretty firmly interventionist and behind FDR at the time, they increasingly attacked Smedley Butler, as they did many members of the old right. And so maybe he wasn't completely a member of the old right, but he was certainly like a fellow traveler with them, whether he realized it or not in the last few years of the 30s. Of course, a guy like Smedley Butler would not let any of this criticism stop him, and if anything, he got even more radical in his pronouncements. For example, in a 1939 radio address, he said the following, quote, Now, you mothers particularly, the only way you can resist all this war hysteria and beating of tom-toms is by asserting the love you bear your boys. When you listen to some well-worded, some well-delivered war speech, just remember it's nothing but sound. No amount of sound can make up to you for the loss of your boy. After you've heard one of those speeches and your blood's all hot and you want to bite somebody like Hitler, go upstairs to where your boy's asleep. Look at him. Put your hand on that spot on the back of his neck. The place he used to love to kiss when he was a baby. Just rub it a little. You won't wake him up. He knows it's you. Just look at this strong, fine young body because only the best boys are chosen for war. Look at this splendid young creature who's part of yourself. Then close your eyes for a moment and I'll tell you what can happen. Somewhere... 5,000 miles from home, night, darkness, cold, a drizzling rain, the noise is terrific. All hell is broken loose. A star shell bursts in the air. Its unearthly flare lights up the muddy field. There's a lot of tangled, rusty, barbed wires out there, and a boy hanging over them, his stomach ripped out, and he's feebly calling for help and water. His lips are white and drawn. He's in agony. That's your boy. The same boy who's lying in bed tonight. The same boy who trusts you. Are you going to run out on him? Are you going to let someone beat a drum or blow a bugle and make him chase after it? Thank God this is a democracy. And by your voice and your vote, you can save your boy. End quote. <laughs> 
Now, can you believe that something that radically anti-war, A, was on American radio in the 1930s, and B, was being said by a highly decorated retired Marine Corps Major General? And in 1940, as FDR was preparing to run for a third term, Butler wrote in a letter to a leader of a group called the Independent Republican Women's Group, which had invited him to speak and he was declining their invitation due to health problems. He wrote to the leader of this group, quote, The people of America are fools. If they want to have their children shot in order to keep Franklin Roosevelt on a pedestal, they will just have to do it. End quote. Not long after that, Smedley Butler would die at the Philadelphia Naval Hospital in June of 1940. Four weeks after checking in there, apparently he died of stomach cancer. Upon his death, the press eulogized him as being a great war hero, and they conveniently kept mum about all the activism and the anti-war and anti-imperial activity of the last decade of his life. In 1942, a U.S. naval destroyer was named after him. This was either an absent-minded choice or a real deliberate middle finger to his memory in light of this man's opposition to FDR's naval buildup and steering of the U.S. into World War II. As yet perhaps another insult, later on, the U.S. Marine Corps base at Okinawa was named after him, and to this day, it's called Marine Corps Base Camp Smedley D. Butler. Oh, and I'm sure that this vehement opponent of American overseas imperialism would be absolutely thrilled to know that Team America named an important imperial outpost after him. And that 70 years after the war that he himself opposed took place, namely World War II, American troops are still in Okinawa in a base camp named after him. He had a hell of a life and a hell of a career, as you've probably gotten a sense. Very complex, very multifaceted, some goods, Lots of bads, but I think you'll agree it was never dull. As a result of all the reading and thinking and research and preparation I did, this episode on Smedley Butler ended up being a lot longer and more complex than I initially expected. But that's what often happens, I've found, when I start to really dig deep into a person or a topic in history. Again, there's a lot about Smedley Butler that I really don't like. There's probably a lot that you don't like either. But I gotta say, at the end of it all, I can't help but appreciate his courage. Now, many people demonstrate physical courage on the battlefield. And I think without question, Smedley Butler showed he had that on many occasions. But he also showed a type of courage that is, I think tragically, more rare than just physical courage. That is, the courage that's really the ability, and more importantly, the willingness to think for oneself and to question things, including one's own beliefs and one's own actions, and to, upon discovering the truth as you understand it, to accept it and to speak it, including to speak it to power, even if doing so means you publicly admit that much of what you've done over the course of a 30-plus year career, in Smedley's case, 33-year career, was in fact tragically wrong and immoral, and you regret it. To my knowledge, no American general of any branch of the military has ever gone as far as Butler did in criticizing American imperialism. 
I'm sure many of them have had similar thoughts, but they lack the courage to say so publicly. The only other person, not just military, but across the board, that I can think of readily who turned his back on a career of similar length and who began to openly, publicly criticize the career that he had dedicated much of his life to is actually John Taylor Gatto, the man who, after three decades as a public school teacher, not only quit, but then became an outspoken critic of the very system that he'd served for most of his adult life. Now, while Smedley Butler failed to stop the U.S. government from turning toward a path of militarism and global imperialism, I think he still deserves our respect today because he fought the good fight. And I think it's fair to say that he achieved redemption in the third act of his life. And for that, at least in my eyes, he deserves a spot in the vaunted pantheon known as DHP Heroes. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter, and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.